welcome once again to In the Finest Hour, the 40K podcast, uh, teaching you skills and techniques you can use in your games to help yourself improve in about an hour. I am your host, Sean Morgan, sometimes known as Abuse Puppy, and with me I have our good podcast host, Shaylin Allen. I'm good at this. I haven't missed an episode yet. Yeah. Fortunately, we are missing Josh again this week. He has had some complications that prevent him from recording tonight. But we're going to have a full episode just as normal, so we're going to go over our topic. I was going to say that the complications were wallet-related with the new Slanesh models. They're not, but it is nice to think that. (laughs) Um, I don't know anyone who has been hospitalized as a result of their GW buying decisions. I didn't say he was hospitalized. I said he just put himself in money coma. Is that a thing? Yes. All right, fair enough. I've never been in a money coma before. You are more sensible than most. Oh, I'm not sure I would go that far. So I actually got a very interesting message not long ago. It was just a a couple days back from a gentleman that I didn't know. Oh? And a little more distant than some of my contacts, he messaged me from China. Ooh. Uh, Asking us to talk a little bit about one of his upcoming tournaments, the North China Open. Excellent. For those of you who may not have heard about it, the North China Open is happening in Tianjin. It is the first ITC tournament happening in the Chinese mainland, I believe. We like to talk about tournaments and kind of give people a little shout out on their events, especially ones that are in our area or that we know the organizers of. So feel free to shoot us a message and... We can't give you an absolute promise, as uh, there's a lot of tournaments happening out there, and if 10 of you message us one week, then that might be a little overwhelming. But we're more than happy to give folks a a shout-out on their tournament if they're looking to promote the events. Yeah. The other thing I've been observing on kind of the note of the first Chinese mainland tournament is the ITC keeps expanding. Like, it really is becoming international. They're putting the eye in ITC now. Yeah. It was not long ago that I know Japan ran their first tournament. Yeah. I believe that uh, several other countries, the Philippines, I believe, had one not so long ago as well. Well, it's also just like the larger events in Europe just start adding on to the train, so to speak. Yeah. I've observed. Like, when you look at the stuff in Europe, it's just more and more events are jumping on there. The London GT was on there. Mm-hmm. We're definitely seeing more events that are becoming a legitimate part of the ITC and, like you say, are making it actually international rather than sort of international in name only. Well, international in the Canada counts as not US, right? Yeah, yeah. We're pretty culturally similar over here. But they say sorry more often, so, you know, that's enough. They're generally more politer than us, (laughs) culturally speaking. So yeah, it's it's really good to see more of these tournaments kind of popping up everywhere. It sounds like they're probably going to fill out either 30 or 40 people, so that's not a, a small event at all for their, their first time there. I wish the best of luck to all of you out there. I know that it's even more complicated because there is no like official Chinese rules. They have to translate them from English themselves. So. No, but they apparently are having full bilingual staff on hand there. That's fantastic. Yeah. That is kind of an interesting tweak to some of the international tournaments is uh, is having the different language versions of the book and all handling all that kind of thing. Yeah, because it just now occurred to me that language barrier can be a reason to not play 40k for certain people. Absolutely. But it seems like they're definitely moving past that. I know uh, a number of the, the other countries where there aren't uh, full official language releases have sort of uh, amateur translations and... Mm-hmm various sort of online projects to bring that sort of thing up to par so that it's viable for tournament play. So that's really good to see. And it'll actually be really interesting to see what sort of meta develops over there as well. Yeah. That's one of the other really great things about seeing it expand into new areas is you see people come up with ideas and push strategies that may not have occurred elsewhere or may just not be that common elsewhere. Mm Mm-hmm. So that actually leads us pretty well into the main topic of our episode, which is improving your competitive lists. Yes. It's actually one that we kind of half teased quite a long time ago. If you have been listening to us since the very beginning, Um, way back in episode four, we talked about writing a competitive list. So you Mm -hmm. might want to go check that episode out if you're looking for a little additional listening material. Additionally, you could go re-listen to the more recent episode, episode 19, Netlisting, because a lot of these same concepts apply. 
They absolutely do. Also, number 19 sounds a lot better than number 4. That's kind of just how experience works. <laughs> they both of those do have some stuff that we will be talking about in here, so you might want to give them a listen if you have a little bit of extra time. So when we talk about improving a competitive list, what are we really like getting at with that? So there's a handful of things. For one thing, we are presuming in this episode that you have a list that you've written, you've taken to a tournament, and you're disappointed. Yes. Or maybe not even disappointed, I would say, but really just like you'd like it to do more. Yeah. It doesn't have enough fire to the thrusters, so to speak. We talked about previously the process of coming up with a list. This will specifically be improving that list. Yeah, you've got your list now. But it's not done. It's like a diamond. You gotta, like, clean off all the stuff. You gotta polish it up, refine all the fractals, and then you got a shiny rock. Mm-hmm. With that in mind, I think the very first part you start with is what is your list's concept? Because that's something I think a lot of people do miss out on. It did take me, I think it was like a year and a half into 40k to finally figure out that I needed to be doing this. Yes. And that's um, me learning the hard way, stumbling into it. And that's kind of the point of the, the whole show here is that we, we give people a view into those learning experiences that hopefully they don't have to spend that year and a half that Shaylin did. <laughs> um or several years beyond that that I'd spent learning how to play competitive 40k, mm -hmm. uh, it can definitely be a lengthy process. That part is actually really important, because you need a concept for your list, something that your list is trying to do. Not just win games, because, I mean, it's a competitive list, of course, it's trying to win games. Yeah. But a core game plan or gimmick or structure that makes the list work. Yes, when we talked about analyzing our opponent's list, one of the things you were looking for was this concept. Yes. If all things are even and in a complete void, what is the list trying to do to achieve victory? Exactly. You need to do that. All lists have it. It basically means you are driving your list, you have the intention, you have a plan. A plan that you're trying to make work, certainly. Yeah. If you don't have this, like, if you don't have this focus to your list that is, here is what I am trying to do, and here is how I am trying to do it, what you get are these, like, battle force armies, is kind of the term I hear used most often, I think really covers it, because they just kind of have one of everything in them. It's like, I brought a predator, and a land raider, and two land speeders, and a tactical squad, and a scout squad, and an intercessor squad, and a chaplain, and three bikes. These battle force lists, which uh, come out of the, the battle forces that GW used to sell for armies mm -hmm. that basically consisted of this sort of thing, are kind of a, a chronic indicator for me. That when someone sends me a list and says, how can I improve this? And the first thing, if I, if I see this kind of 1x, 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 1x format, that's when I know it's like, okay, they don't actually have a plan for this. And if that's the kind of list you're writing, then you're probably going to need to start over from scratch because you don't really have a very good start on an army there. You just sort of have a collection of models. And, a, and an army is more than a collection of models. Yeah, an army is a collection of thoughts to a goal. Yes, and every unit in the army should be pushing you towards that goal in some way. Now, that's not to say that you won't have units that do different things. If you're building a shooting list, not every unit needs to be a shooting unit. No, having a countercharge model there is remarkably effective. And yes, but the important thing to understand is that countercharge model serves the overall goal of keeping your shooting functioning by stopping people from charging you. Exactly. And that's why it's a countercharge unit, not a charge unit. Exactly. Like in the Grey Knights list I built the other day, I brought three Insta Servitors to hold objectives in the backfield so I could win games. Yep. If you're sending everything else forward, something has got to stay back. That's what we say when we're talking about this concept, is you, you need to have some idea what it is your list does. Does it sit on objectives and just hold them and survive? Is it trying to play some kind of psychic game? Is it using buff powers to make one unit really strong? Is it planning to outshoot? Is it going to overwhelm the opponent with assault threats? There's a lot of different ways you can go about this, but if you don't know what your list's core concept is and what its goal is, then you need to step back and take a really hard look at the list and say, what am I doing here? And what has been working? Because if you maybe if you don't build a list with this idea, but it does work okay, then you can stop and say, okay, what plan has worked for me so far? Mm -hmm. How do I change the list to further that plan? On the note of plans, because one of the things you do when you're 
designing and refining a list is you look at your problems and sometimes the problem isn't the list itself it's how you executed it yeah it might be that it's a really fine high finesse shenanigans list and if it's a high finesse shenanigans list and you don't have that finesse skill it's never going to add up well for you yeah because when you're picking apart a list you are going to look at like what can't i do well but make sure to differentiate problems with the list from problems with how you played the list because it's okay to admit that you made mistakes there's there's no shame in that mm-hmm. especially if you're you're being honest with yourself and you can say like okay oh well, this is what i did but you do need to be able to look back and say like did i not have enough guns or did i just point my guns at the wrong targets exactly or did i overexpose my guns because i did have the resilience but i left them out in the open and they just got blown off yeah well, and there are a lot of different issues. Let's take a moment to kind of, like, talk about what some of the, the problems you might encounter list. Because oh, yeah. Hopefully you do kind of come away from this tournament or these practice games or whatever with a feeling about what it is your list is missing. Mm-hmm. I mean, at the very least, hopefully you have a feeling that something is missing. Another thing we, we've kind of touched on in the past is that there's always room for improvement in a list. Yeah. No matter how good a designer you are and how good you've gotten your list, there's always one more change you can make to it. Don't ever feel like you've made the perfect list and you can just stop, because I guarantee you, you haven't. No, also, the meta is still shifting plenty, and the FAQ is definitely going to drop and shift that around, so... Yep. Even if things aren't changing currently, you need to be getting ahead of the changes that will happen, or mm-hmm. adapting for the ch- way people are going to be preparing for the changes, and all those other... It's, it's a constant process. Oh, yeah. Um, so, let's talk a little bit about these these different, like, lacks that you might see in a list. What do you think the most common one would be? Well, there's one in 8th edition that really stands out, and that's just general resilience. Things are designed to die in this edition... So sticking around is actually a remarkably hard thing to do. Yes. A lot of lists can run into this where they'll people will pack in a lot of firepower that is just going to absolutely smash anything it shoots at, and then they go second and all their guns go away because mm-hmm. the opponent's list does that too. If your list can't afford to go second, it has to go first to be able to win most matchups, you've got a problem and you're going to need to look at your list's resilience. Yes. Another thing on the kind of counter thing I've noticed is related to resilience is scoring can become an issue. It's like I've got these really powerful assault units. They get destroyed upon contact with the enemy. It's like they just they take something down with them, basically. What are you scoring objectives with? Yes. And in some cases, your your scoring units can be doing other jobs at the same time. It's a little bit harder for assault units, although not always, especially if their objective secured. Mm hmm. Because then they can take an objective from the enemy while they're assaulting them. I have done this. It's adorable to watch. One little strike marine holds it from an entire tier in the line. Yep. It's happened before. Objective secured is a very good rule. But look at what your scoring units are and what units are likely to be able to get onto objectives. Mm-hmm. Because it's going to be a lot easier for some units than others. Uh, Shailen mentioned earlier those little like baby units of servitors. Sometimes you just have to take a trash unit like that and throw a few points away so that you have something that can be scoring. Exactly. And and sometimes the, the scoring issue is how to get it there, because there are always objectives in midfield and often on the opponent's side of the table. How do you get there? Yes. Your objectives are not the only ones. In fact, in a lot of deployments and mission setups, you may only have one objective in your deployment zone. Mm-hmm. And that is not enough. You're going to need to hold more than that. Yeah. So that can actually be part of the scoring equation is just Vehicles for getting you there. How, whatever that looks like. It can be, well, I need a unit that's fast. Well, I need a transport. Well, I need a psychic power. Or a unit that can go into reserve and just appear on an objective elsewhere, or yeah. whatever that may be. Yeah. Understand that you are going to need to hold more than one objective if you want to consistently win games. Even the flyer-heavy lists have to consider this. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of these factors that focus on... One thing, but you understand that you may be giving up something else, and there's always a very fine balance on that. Well, also there's firepower, because you often trade resilience for firepower. 
Firepower is obviously super important in 8th, where, as Shaylin said, units just kind of, like, die willy-nilly. If you're able to get that first big punch in, then that can be really big. Mm -hmm. But firepower is more than just the raw stats. A lot of people will sort of, like, math hammer it all out and say, like, oh, well, I calculated it, this is the ideal gun, so I took 32 of them. But that gun's gonna have to shoot at a lot of different targets. Yeah. Is it going to be just as good against an Imperial Guardsman as it is against an Imperial Knight? Probably not. Mm-hmm. You're going to need different kinds of firepower to deal with different targets, whether that firepower is melee or shooting, mm-hmm. or psychic, or whatever it may be. And also consider factors like range. Oh, yeah. 24 inches is a shitty thing to live at, by the way. Yep, because you, you think about it, a lot of those deployments, you can get quite a long ways from the enemy if you really want to. So if your whole army only works out to 24 inches, maybe you waste two full turns of the game just getting to the enemy, and you're just getting shots rained down on you that whole time. Oh, what's the Hanzu quote Josh is always bringing up? Oh, about the the short, medium, and long. And, if and you your can't... enemy's going to use the one you suck at? Yeah, that, that yes. quote. Uh, so absolutely, consider your ranges. Also consider things like, do you need line of sight for all of your firepower? Because you need to be able to pry people out of boxes. It might mean melee and it might mean shooting, but you're going to need something. Also, playing the mission. Does your army play the mission well? Yes. The primary and secondary missions, whatever those may be. Mm-hmm. We've talked about scoring already as kind of like, that's usually the primary mission, as it turns out. But in ITC in particular, as well as the ITC similar formats, such as Nova or Renegade and stuff like that, where you have a secondary missions that you are choosing on a game-by-game basis. Yeah. How easily do you achieve those, and how easily do you deny those to your opponent? Mm -hmm. Because maybe if you only score 8 to 10 per game, that's fine, as long as your opponent scores less than that. Exactly. Lastly, there's a hard counter. Every list has a hard counter at the end of the day. I'm not sure I would go so far as to say every list, but most lists will have something they struggle with more than others, for sure. Yeah. And some lists, obviously, more than others. Yeah. A pure knight's list is going to have a real problem with that Harlequin Haywire bike list. Oh, yeah. But the Harlequin Highwire bikes are not going to do so well against orcs. So understand what your your counter matchups are, what you can do well and what you can do badly against. And this is where your research comes in, because you need to know what you're likely to face. Exactly. If you're going up to Mugu and like 13 out of 20 players are bringing knights, and you didn't bring a list that can deal with knights, you're probably going to have a bad time. Yes, because there there are lists that may be able to beat you, but if you don't ever have to face those lists, who cares? Mm-hmm. Like, if, if you're sort of looking at it like, oh man, I lose so badly the Primaris Marines list. Yeah, but how likely are you to face that pure Primaris list? Especially when it comes to round two and three and you're undefeated in the tournaments? You're probably not going to see them. So it's okay to have weaknesses in a list, provided they're not weaknesses that are you're likely to encounter in the matchups. And it's always a betting game. You never know exactly what you're going to run into, but you know what is going to be likely, at least hopefully. Hopefully you've done your research on that. Or you've leaned on your team and had them help you with it. Yes, and that is another critical point, is talk to other people as part of this. Yeah. You need other sets of eyes when you're doing this to help you identify, like, what has worked and what doesn't, because they may have a very different view on why a matchup played out the way it did. If you say, like, oh man, I lost because I just didn't have the firepower to blow all his guns away, and then you kind of, like, you explain the battle to your opponent, and they're just like, no, you lost because he killed all your guns on turn two. You had the guns, they just all died. Mm Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit from there about what the the process of list building kind of looks like to us. I have my favorite process ever. This is a process I use on a lot of things. It's called the Champ Contender Model. I think that's a pretty good one. We've, we've talked about this briefly in one of our other episodes, I believe, but why don't you explain it in a little bit of depth here? Okay, so what I do when I'm building a list is I start with a with the list decor, and I'm like, all right, this is my champion, and all of its components in there are sub-champions, so to speak. So we'll go later in the episode and explain what we mean by components and assemblies. But I look at those, and then I go, can I find something better to defeat that? Because if I can find something better to defeat that, I'll swap it out for that thing to make the list overall better. Right. 
the way I tend to think about it, this is is sort of like a branching tree. Is that you start with the the root of this tree, which Chewen I think would call the com- the champion list, mm-hmm. and you start building different versions on it. And you take it and you say, okay, what if I change out this detachment for something else, or mm-hmm. what if I remove these three units and replace them with some different HQs, and then you build a new version of that. Then you look at that and you say, okay, is this better than the original version or is it worse? Or are parts of it better? Are parts of it better? So if you say, well, I like this part, but I don't like this part, because that's often what you get. You usually yeah. don't get an obvious, like, oh, this is clearly better. Mm-hmm. If you've done that, you've probably made a big step forward in your list building. Yes. If you can say, like, oh, I like what it does here, but I don't like this, then you can try and cover up that weakness and say, okay, I need more anti-tank in this version, so if I drop this other thing, and you're probably making many different versions. I like Battlescribe for this because it allows me to just repeatedly duplicate a list and alter it. Mm -hmm. So I'll end up with these sort of like tree branches that like start at one point and then become more and more different as I make different iterations of a list, uh, kind of expanding outwards until I come on something that can beat my champion. Mm-hmm. That I look at and I say, oh, well, this is better than the version that I started out with. And then, then you build that list and rebuild that one. Yes. Because that's how this process works, is um, you keep rebuilding. One of the things that is very useful, though, is I often keep a couple champion lists functionally. Yeah. I will have some of the older versions that I have maybe moved past, or I'm not sure if they're necessarily worse, but I think that, you know, they have a different core idea. So I will have three or four older iterations of a list that I can always go back to and say, well, okay, I didn't like where this branch took me. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go back to this previous version and try branching from there in a different direction. Yeah. Don't throw away all your lists immediately. Keep them for a little bit because you may find that the the direction you were going didn't really take you to a place you were entirely happy with. Well, also, as I often reference, is you keep the knowledge and sometimes I just keep notes of it like, okay, this is the general idea. These are the general components. And I keep those in my back pocket because sometimes later a lot of list building is about compromising. Mm-hmm. And sometimes a component of the compromise I made in that previous idea is going to slot in to fill a compromise need in a different list later. Absolutely. That's the real benefit of iterating like that, is that you can see things that like, oh, this idea worked really well. How do I fit that in with the other earlier idea I had? Either earlier idea or, man, I need to drop 100 points, but this other... Oh, look, this other earlier idea is 100 points less. We'll put that in here and see what happens. Exactly. You know, this combination of HQs does a similar thing, but saves me that 100 points that I need. Exactly. And this is where I think you can get a lot of value, again, out of talking to your team, looking at lists online, either through BCP or through, you know, 40k stats or or one of these other list conglomeration sites. Yeah. Because you can find these ideas that may inspire you to say, like, oh, wow, I really like the way that he put that one knight in there. I think that adds a lot to the list. How can I fit that knight into my army, and what do I need to drop to get that? Or you might say, well, oh, he's doing the same thing I'm doing, but he's doing it for 75 points cheaper. Mm-hmm. Uh, How'd he manage that feat? Exactly. Oh, he dropped that thing and that thing. Oh, I never thought about getting rid of those. So this is where the inspiration, especially from our netlisting episode, can come in and be really beneficial to you. Well, yeah, no, it's more of lists aren't made in a vacuum ever, so why would you hold yourself to that? That's, exactly. That's not even hard mode, that's just face against wall mode. Having that alternative viewpoint where you may think you've come up with the greatest thing since sliced bread, and your buddy might kind of take one look at it and say, how do you kill a tank? <laughs> and you're like, oh, well, I don't need to because I can do this and this. And he'll just say, well... What if I brought five Lehman Russes and they all have Punisher cannons? How do you beat that? And all of a sudden you're like, oh man, how do I beat that? I think my favorite quote I said to someone once is, you can't kill a rhino with your list. I think you have a problem. Yeah. And I mean, that's probably an extreme case. If you can't kill a rhino, then your list has your list has a lot of problems. <laughs> uh, the idea there that like, you need to be able to handle lots of things and you may not have considered all of those or you may see this as this some sort of like unstoppable juggernaut and your opponent will say well what if they deny that one psychic power you need yeah 
Or what if it fails? Or if it fails. Having another set of eyes lets you see these failure points and, and may open up points of success as well, where they can say, like, well, I don't think you need that third tech marine. I mean, three of them is great, but you can get by with two, can't you? Yeah. You achieved your saturation with eight models here. You don't need the ninth and tenth one, really, if you needed to shave those 40 points. Exactly. And that's where that extra set of eyes gives you a different perspective that can really kind of jolt you out of that tunnel vision that you often get. Because we all get that. Like, that's just part of writing lists. You get so focused on things, it's hard to really have good perspective. As I mentioned in the writing list episode, sometimes space and physical time can give you a little bit of that yourself, but really other people are the best source. They are. You should sometimes put your list down and just let them sit for a little while. That is extremely good advice right there, but that's never going to be as good as having a completely different brain to look at it. And that's something you can't do yourself unless you were the man with two brains, in which case, congratulations. <laughs> Speaking of other people, I think I hear the quartermaster. I am going to pretend I did not and sneak off behind the barracks here. You make excuses for me. <laughs> I'll say you have dental. Yes. War gamers, perhaps you have an army that you've always been wanting to collect, but just don't have all the cash flow you'd like to get all the models brand spanking new from Games Workshop Direct. Or maybe you've got an army you just don't have space in your life to love as much as it really deserves. Well, let me tell you about Mindtaker Miniatures. At Mindtaker.org, you can contact the buyer and sell your miniatures for used ones that are perfectly good and fun for everybody. They're Northwest Area Gamers. If you're looking for a major ITC event happening in the later end of the year here, think about Stumptown Stomp. It's a charity event, and at only $55, the majority of which does go to charity, you can get in for two full days of gaming on November 16th and 17th, and it comes with a potluck lunch on the first day of the event. There are a variety of prizes, raffled as well as awarded, for both painting, sportsmanship, overall, and generalship. So come on down to Guardian Games and give it a spin. And we are back. It Turns out she knows about the spot behind the barracks, too? You didn't, like, narc on me, did you? No. Okay, good. I did receive three floggings for lying on your behalf. Well, I at least appreciate the lying part. I'm bad at this, Sean. Don't ask me to do that again. But, I mean, it worked, sort of. Kind of. No, I'm not doing this again. Oh. Don't ask autistic people to lie, dude. It doesn't work. I mean, it did work. You lied. Badly? They totally saw through it. That was the point, though. It was one of these sort of Xanatos gambits. I knew that it was going to fail, and that was part of my plan. So, let's talk a little bit about uh, philosophy of list points, because this is actually something that Shaylin and I have a little bit of a disagreement over. Yeah. And it's not to say that either of these ideas are necessarily right or wrong, but they're, they're different ways of approaching a problem. And that said, I will tell you that if you use one, try using the other for a little bit, because that exercise will improve your list building. It can definitely be valuable to look at it from the other perspective. And the reality is we're presenting these as two, like, opposite ideas, but they're, they're really two sides of the same coin. You're just looking at it from a different way. Exactly. As I said, there's benefits from doing both yeah. as an exercise. You, you should have a Swiss army knife in your pocket, not just a screwdriver. Okay. <laughs> The way we kind of came to describe them in the, the pre-show here was build over and cut down versus build the cap. Yes. 
my philosophy on things is is build over cut down. Mm-hmm. When I put a list together, I figure out what I want to include and what I think I'm going to be able to fit into it, and I put that all together, and it is always every single time over points mm-hmm. uh, because I am I'm always let's say optimistic about what I can fit in, <laughs> um, and I, I will end up with my two thousand point lists being twenty two hundred or twenty four hundred or sometimes even higher than that. But usually, if I get to that stage, then I realize that I have a little bit of a problem and I need to reassess my assumptions about things. Yes. Um, But I always build over on points. And then I take the list and say, okay, what can I get rid of from this while still holding the list's core identity? And I do kind of the other side of the coin. I build a cap. So I build up my list and then I stomp at the cap. And it's partly that I come from the autistic background where I want things perfectly full and I don't like overfilling things when they don't fit. And of course, I also want, you know, you want to use all your points. You obviously are not going to leave 50 points sitting on the table. The question is how you kind of approach that idea. The benefit of build over cutdown is that you're looking for the most you can get in a list. You can say, like, I want this and this and this and this and this. And maybe you can fit all of those things. Maybe you can't. Doesn't always work out, as I said. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the benefit may be that if you are able to squeeze all those things in, what you end up with is a very efficient and streamlined list. And the counterpoint to build a cap is I build really, really, really small and use much smaller components. That lets me look at assemblies in a very different way. Yeah. Uh, that makes me build my assemblies as streamlined and small as possible to start with. And then I get faced with the question, well, I've got some extra points. What do I do now? Right, and then you can use those few points to to fill something out and say, well, okay, now that I'm not stuck at the bare minimum, how can I fill that in a little bit? Build a cap often lets you isolate what I would consider list play, because when we see list archetypes, as we've mentioned before on the show, there's about somewhere between 150 to 300 points in many lists that can be swapped out and maintain its core idea. Mm-hmm. Build a cap lets you get a better feeling of that space. Yeah, so it's it's giving you an idea of what these uh, kind of little pieces that you can put together are. Yeah, as I said, they're both really useful. Use them both. Right. In fact, if you're if you've been building with one and not the other, try using the other. Yeah, it's and I think a lot of it just does just does matter with your approach. It's mm-hmm. it's how you mentalize the process of list building more than anything. Yeah, this is why also involving other people is good because Sean does the sure. other thing that I do. So. Right. Both of us together get the complete coin. Exactly. So let's talk about what I think is the the part most people struggle with in a list. Even more so than the list concept, because that's something that kind of comes naturally. But the hardest part of a list is finding points. Ah, yes. you always get to that stage where if I had 50 more points, I could. Mm -hmm. Or I need to trim down... 38 points from this army how do i do that and that's that's a question i get from a lot of people is they'll send me a list and they'll say i need some way to get rid of some points in this or what would you cut from this list so i think it's very much worthwhile talking about how do you cut points from a list because that's super important well there's the old adage of 40k boys not toys yes that's one i have preached for a long time now certainly not something i made up myself but i i think something that the very first thing you should always be looking at is we talk about sort of like minimizing these units start with the minimum Mm -hmm. what you actually mean by the minimum can vary unit by unit it doesn't necessarily mean a unit with no upgrades on it because a captain with no upgrades on it is a piece of garbage whereas a captain as a unit can be extremely valuable yes Uh, but if he's just a naked guy holding a chainsword and a bolt pistol then why did you even take him or maybe you took him that way because he's going to sit there and buff your devastators all game and he doesn't need anything else could be but typically that is not what we mean when we talk about a minimum unit the minimum needed to do whatever it is you're taking that unit for exactly and boys know it toys is really the the culmination of that it's the the idea of this saying is that your list is almost always going to be better off adding more bodies and more units than it is by adding upgrades to those units yes 
one of the ways I look at it is when I look at my upgrades before I even take it, what is this upgrade hypothetically doing for me and was it mechanically doing it for me? Yes, because in a lot of cases they don't pay off. Mm-hmm. If we're being like super honest, like if you <coughs> look at like what sort of bonuses you get from say taking one more tactical marine versus giving one of those tactical marines a flamer, yeah. You actually come out way better with the additional tactical marine most of the time. Yes. And there are some cases where that's not the case. Sure, this is not an absolute rule. This is not to say you shouldn't take upgrades. You should. There are some of them that are really good. Oh, yeah. Um, The general rule should be that you want to take more units over more upgrades. Because two of something is almost always better than one upgraded something. Yes. But flip side of that, there are some upgrades that fundamentally change what a unit does. Yes. Like adding a mortar team to a guardsman infantry squad, now it can do something while it sits in the back. It can. Or contra-wise, like we talked about the captain earlier, a naked captain doesn't do anything. But a captain with a thunder hammer and a jump pack and a storm shield, that guy does something. And I think pretty much everyone knows what that guy does. He kills whatever he touches. So there is a world of difference between a captain and a smash captain. The Smash Captain is, in a lot of ways, the minimum version of that unit. Yes. Because that he has a fundamental competency, a, a core role that he fills, whereas the regular Captain generally does not. Yes, and I would argue, for example, a Dread Knight, if you don't put two guns on your Dread Knight, you aren't building your Dread Knight correctly. Yes, many units... Their basic version is not really their basic version, because the the presumption is probably that you are adding on some stuff. Uh, Devastators are kind of in the same way. It's like, you can take a naked Devastator squad, but why would you? Yeah. You should be putting at least one heavy weapon, and often more than that, onto those Devastators. Uh Because you're you're paying for the ability to take those heavy weapons. Exactly. Uh, Just like on a captain, you are paying for the good stat line you should probably take some weapons that make use of that stat line. Like a Dreadnought, you're already throwing down 130 points. What's another 20, 40 more to give him two guns to make him that much more better? Right, and that is where the Boys Not Toys can fail, is where the upgrade cost is so much lower than the base unit cost, but adds a lot for it. Uh, and we're going to add on a little caveat there. It's only five points. Oh, okay. So what, let's hold off on that one a second, because that's a whole rant I've got. Uh-oh. Just on, on the subject of that, like, Dread Knight that Shaylin was talking about, if you think about it, a basic Dread Knight punches and nothing else. Yes. Uh, he doesn't even teleport onto the field without adding points. Nope, gotta, gotta spend points for that. But if you pay 40 points, that's a third of his base cost, to give him two guns... That adds so much functionality, and that's where or upgrades start to actually have their use, is where they add new functionality the unit previously did not have access to, or increases its core functionality. Yeah. That's why, you know, the buying a Thunder Hammer on the Captain is very valuable, because he's already good at punching, the Thunder Hammer makes him better at punching, which is what he's supposed to do. Well, and I'll be honest, like, if you look at named characters, they have upgrades built into them for this reason. Exactly. So that's really what you need to be thinking about with your upgrades, is, like, are they giving me a new functionality that I need? Because a lot of function upgrades will give you a new functionality, but it may not be something that's all that useful to you. Yeah. If you put that combi plasma on, the, like, random sergeant, it's like... Well, you know, yeah, that's something new, but do I need a combi plasma on the squad that's going to be sitting 48 inches away from the enemy? Eh. Maybe not. But in a Taoist, tucking in a marker light on each of the Shashuis might be very useful to you because that's protected marker lights. Protected marker lights and just like Tao need marker lights. That's a core part of their army. Mm -hmm. So that's the sort of thing you should be thinking about when you're looking at your upgrades. Yes. Okay, now let's tackle that only five points thing. This is one that I see a lot of people say, like Shaylin kind of alluded to. You will have someone who asks you to 
like, hey, can you help me some trim some points in a list? Or what should I change about this list? Mm-hmm. And you'll say, okay, first thing you need to do is drop the power sword off all your sergeants. And they'll say, but it's only four points. But you took 20 of them, and four times 20, my friend, is 80 points. What were you doing there? And those 80 points, I mean, that's an entire another squad of tactical marines with a special weapon in it. Yeah. And it's not always that big of a thing. You probably aren't actually taking 20 power swords, but you are probably taking three power swords and then a combi plasma somewhere and then a combat shield on a guy who doesn't need it and then a hunter killer missile on one of your rhinos. And it's all these little tiny nickel and dime kind of things. It's just, it's two points here. It's four points there. It's one point here. It's three points there. It's five points there. But what is it doing for you at the end of the day? How often does that power sword even come up? And the answer is not really. Exactly. And does it actually change things even when it does come up? That's kind of the big sin of the power sword is like, even when you do get into combat, what are the odds that it actually helps you win the combat? As a Grey Knight player, not that helpful. Yes. And I spam them. Yep, your whole army has got the power weapons. (laughs) So that's really a critical part, is like when you are trying to trim down your list, you might think there's no room for trimming because you're spending all your points and, you know, you you can't get rid of any of this stuff. It's all useful. And that's true. It is all useful. Like upgrades all do something, but does it do more than those points could be used elsewhere? It's why I always took the sister squad that was just bare naked and I didn't put any upgrades in. They always sat behind line of sight on an objective all game. Why would I put points there? Exactly. And those few little points you save, they don't seem like a lot, but there's so many times that you get down to that like last chunk of a list where it's like, well, I need to take 20 points off this. That's and... the first place to look. That's where those 20 points come from. Or if only I had 20 more points, I could take another squad. And that's the difference between a list that is okay, you know, maybe even decent, and a list that is going to maybe win a tournament. Optimized. Yes, a a list that is actually, we'll say fully, even though fully doesn't really mean finished, but fully optimized here is you've gotten rid of all of those kind of useless little upgrades and things you don't need, because there's always a lot of those. Anytime you see, like, just sort of a random list off someone who has just put it together. Yeah. And it's usually, I mean, when people send me lists, I can often trim anywhere between 30 and 80 points out of them without too much difficulty, without really giving anything up. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about assemblies. Shaylin talked about these earlier. I'll talk about them some more. All right. So assemblies, like, for example, what I would call a very common assembly is the Loyal 32. That's actually a perfect example of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very common component you see in lists. It basically provides CP, some combination of backfield or chaff units. Yeah, and this is the core idea behind assemblies, is you have these pieces. um, Think of them like a a Lego piece or something like that. Oh man, the Lego analogy came back! The Lego analogy is back. You have these pieces that you, you kind of connect together, and each of them do their own thing on their own, but when combined together, they can make something bigger. So this Loyal 32 piece is great, because as Shaylin says, like it gives you CP, it holds your backfield, it lets you screen things, and that's what makes it such a common piece for people to use. When you're building lists, you'll often have these assemblies of multiple units working together that only really do your job when you have all of them. Because a Smash Captain works fine on his own. Uh, He doesn't really need anybody else to help him out. He does his thing by his lonesome. But you pair him with some Grey Knights to clear the chaff in front of them, suddenly he can charge the knight immediately. Sure. That's an example. Yes, and that's synergies between units, which is a little bit different than uh, an assembly is itself. An assembly are pieces that don't really work by themselves. You see the Loyal 32. You can't just take two commanders. That doesn't get you any command points. Mm. You can't just take three infantry squads. That's not doing jack for you. One commander and one infantry squad who needs a patrol. You want a battalion. Only works as a piece combined together in that particular way. It's the smallest piece that still functions. Exactly. And often assemblies can have things added onto them. Your loyal 32 can bring nine mortars along to the party. Yep. Nothing's stopping you. But you can't make it any smaller than the Loyal 32. That's why it's an assembly. It's the smallest piece you can break down. 
Another good example might be the Archon plus three Ravagers detachment that you often see as Blackheart. Yeah. Can't bring one Archon, one Ravager. That's not a detachment. Can't bring three Ravagers. Not only is that not an attachment, they're not getting all the rerolls you need. So this one Archon, three Ravagers is kind of like the core minimum piece of that. They often fill out an exact force org detachment of some type is an observation. Some kind of minimum piece, but they don't always. Um, you will sometimes see assemblies that can be part of multiple types of force orgs. Yes. Um, so, for example, the uh, conscripts plus Strachan plus a priest is what I would think of as an assembly. Yes, and that can be tucked into that Loyal 32 list. It sure can. Uh, or it can be part of a brigade if you want to go whole hog with it. You can get these ways that assemblies fit into multiple things. For example, the Archon plus three Ravagers assembly also fits into a Blackheart battalion. Mm-hmm. Makes a, a nice, neat little piece that you can stick in there. You add another Archon and three troop units, and now you got some more command points yeah. to spend on all of those Agents of Vec that you're probably going to be doing. Or other Dark Elder shenanigans, because they got yes. those too. Oh, absolutely. And so this is the key thing about assemblies, is that they can be fit into lists in multiple ways, and their concepts and roles that you can use in multiple kinds of lists. That... Loyal 32 is providing command points and all those other things that are needed in lots of kinds of armies, mm -hmm. whether they be a knight's army or a gray knight's army or ad mech or what have you. And contra-wise, the Dark Eldar one can slot into lots of different kinds of armies as well. It's providing this kind of heavy anti-infantry, light anti-tank firepower that is often very useful. That's fast and maneuverable. Yes. All these assemblies often fill multiple roles. Like, screen and backfield is two roles. Yep. And this is where you're actually looking for things that do fill multiple roles, because you don't want anything in your list that only does one thing, unless it's really good at that thing. Tau are good at shooting. We're just gonna say it again. They are. And you take a unit like Broadsides, that only thing they do is shoot. They are not maneuverable, they are not flexible, they shoot, and they shoot really hard. And that's okay, because they're so good at that one thing. But sometimes you need other kinds of units that can do multiple things. A Riptide not only shoots pretty hard, not as hard as the broadsides, but it is faster and more maneuverable and tougher. Yeah. And so this is where assemblies that fill multiple roles become important. Yes. That you need these units that can do more than one job because you're not going to need the same thing out of them every single game. Exactly. It may be that you need them to screen in one game and then to hold your backfield in another. And the fact that you can do both of those with the same assembly is what makes it so powerful. Yes. Let's talk about the, the last kind of concept here that I think is key to finding points is know what you can afford to give up and what is critical to your list. Oh, yeah. Because there are some things that you will be able to remove. You can say, like, oh, I don't really need that third basilisk. It's helpful. It's nice. I can get by without it. But maybe there are some other things that you can't afford to give up. If you can look at things and say, like, well, I can't have less than 140 infantry in this army. Otherwise... It just doesn't work. The concept is that I overload them with infantry. So if I drop below that threshold of 140, the army just doesn't work anymore. Yes. Knowing what those are and where those limits are is going to be very important to trimming down a list. And that is why, again, extra eyes. For example, I know that with Seraphim, you need eight bodies to saturate minimally. You can have more, but eight is really a magic number there. Yeah, we found in, in testing, and this was obviously earlier in the edition, but if you went below seven bodies in a Seraphim squad, it was just too easy for the enemy to get rid of all of them and thus clear out all those expensive melta pistols. Yes, if that you... Seven or eight or nine or ten of them, then it got really hard to eliminate all those melta, all those sisters before you got to the melta pistols. And when you got to ten, it started running into morale problems, so a little yes. less than ten was actually better. Yep. And that is where the testing and your experience with the list will come in to knowing, like, what are your limits and what's critical and what isn't. Because mm -hmm. uh, that 10th body wasn't critical, we found. It didn't actually add much survivability because you'd lose that 10th body to the morale. Yeah. But 
the sixth and seventh bodies were critical because they were what allowed you to ensure that your guns were probably still alive, or at least the guns you cared about the most. Yep. And knowing that is only going to come from experience and testing and having people to look at it. But once you do know that, and once you've gotten that experience, then you can kind of make those intuitions of saying like, oh, that isn't enough, or oh, I don't need that. Exactly. Let's talk about detachments a little bit, because we already discussed them kind of in the context of the assemblies like that, as most assemblies do form a detachment at the very least. Mm -hmm. But detachments themselves are a resource as well. Oh yeah, well that's how you get your command points. Yep. That's how you get allies if you're taking them, or even like sub-faction allies. Yes, and most importantly, like the other resources you have in this game, you only get so many of them. You can't just take all the detachments you want. In most typical ITC games, and in fact most tournament games, you're, you have three detachments, so you've got to be careful how you use them. If you're burning an entire detachment on an auxiliary support, you really had better need whatever that one unit in the auxiliary support is. Mm-hmm. Because that is one-third of your detachments right there. Doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Sometimes it's worth it, but... Like the old commander thing, getting a third commander was totally worth it. Yep, and that was why Tau really wanted to take a full three detachments, is it means that they can get three commanders, because if you have less than three, you don't get as many commanders. Yeah. Think about what your detachments are doing for you. Uh, Shailen mentioned command points. That is the single biggest thing your detachments do for you. Mm-hmm. But you need command points to power your stratagems in most cases. Some lists need more, some lists need less, but you probably want some number of command points, and detachments are how you're going to get that. Oh, yeah. And the other thing detachments do is they can give you access to slots. That is why they have the Vanguard and the Outrider and the Spearhead, is to give you access to specific slots more and more efficiently in core down. Yes. Generally speaking, you know, those are going to provide you with fewer command points compared to a battalion or brigade where you're having to take troops. But you are getting access to, like, if all your good units are in fast attack choice, you can just boil down to those fast attack choices and not have to bother with the other stuff. Presuming you don't need the command points, of course. Yes. Asterisks. And this is where you're making the trade-offs, is you're having to decide how many points am I willing to spend to gain command points. Mm Mm-hmm. This could be where the stuff like the Loyal 32 is very useful, because it allows you a a very cheap way of gaining command points at the cost of a detachment. But if you can afford to give up that detachment and gain some command points that way, rather than taking more expensive troops elsewhere, perhaps it's worthwhile. Yes. The other very important thing that detachments do for you is they're how you get your allies and other factions. Mm -hmm. Um, Either actual other factions or other sub-factions from within your army. Yep, you'll often see Sasia and Tau together. Just saying. Because you, you want the benefits of both, and you can get them both if you're willing to dedicate the detachments to it, because Tau don't have any other allies, so they may as well take allies with themselves. But for factions that do have the option of allying, your detachments are how you're going to be able to do that, and you're going to have to make some decisions there as well. How valuable are allies to you? Do you want to ally at all? You may be trying for pure faction for some reason, or you may be trying to stay within your own faction because your bonuses there are actually really good. Mm -hmm. But you do need to look at what allies can potentially bring to your army. We're going to have a whole other episode on this, hopefully sometime in the near future. Allies can be very, very important because they bring to you things that your army can't do in many cases. Yes. Grey Knights, not a lot of cheap troops, but they have access to the Imperium, which is full of cheap troops. Mm-hmm. Another thing to think about with your detachments is what role are they filling? Because we talked about your sort of overall army role and goals and all that sort of thing. But detachments themselves tend to have particular roles they fill as well. Yes. This detachment is bringing the brunt of my firepower. This detachment is giving me primary Grey Knights. Blah, 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 blah. Yes. And you'll often have detachments. It's like, oh, I took this Blood Angels detachment because I needed a way to kill knights. Mm -hmm. And it has three Smash Captains in it. And what do they do? They kill knights real, real good. So know why it is you're taking an attachment. You should never be taking attachment just like, well, I had three detachments, so I figured I might as well bring an Inquisitor along. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, what, what, what is your Inquisitor doing for you? I brought the Inquisitor along because he has the deny Overwatch power. Sure, see? And that attachment is filling a role. 
But if all you brought the Inquisitor for was, I had an Inquisitor model, I wanted to bring him with me, that's not really an optimized list right there. So know what your detachments do and how they're filling the roles, because typically each army and each will have something they're very good at. Blood Angels has those very powerful smash captains. Dark Angels has that strong anti-infantry shooting. Mm-hmm. Grey Knights has those reserve elements that can be really useful. And psychic defense and psychic up psychic the wazoo! Know what your detachments are being brought for, and make sure that your army as a whole is covering all the bases it needs to. Look back to that list we talked about in the first half, where it's like, am I getting enough scoring? Do I have enough resilience? Do I have enough firepower? If you aren't getting those things, consider switching out one of your detachments for something different. Mm -hmm. If you've been bringing along those blood angels, and they're just not bringing the kind of anti-tank you need, maybe you need to consider a different kind of detachment for it instead of them. Yeah. That said, we've talked a lot about improving your list in various ways and these little tweaks and little tweaks, but as Sean said, you prune the tree, sometimes you just run into dead ends. Yes. I would even go so far as to say more than sometimes. Josh and Shaylin and I have talked about this on many episodes in the past. We go through dozens of lists, sometimes hundreds of lists, before we arrive at the one we bring to a tournament you are going to hit a lot of dead ends because most ideas don't work. And that's why you need to be statistically shooting a lot of shots. You do the shotgun approach to list building. You're going to find the one that works, but you got to keep shooting. Yes, you just, you keep trying, you keep making new versions. And if they're not what you want, you keep making new versions. Mm -hmm. Keep doing that. Now, at a certain point, you may have done everything you can do for a particular list concept. You will at some point arrive at a list concept and say, I don't think I can make this any better. Yes. Then you look at there's like, is the concept the problem? Which may very well be the issue. I have discarded quite a few concepts as of late as just, I don't think this is good enough to work. I've played around with it and I've iterated a number of times and I just don't think it works. Don't be afraid to abandon an entire concept. This is where Shaylin was talking about how every time you make a new list, that can be a learning opportunity. Just because you went through 20 versions of a list and then ended up throwing the whole thing away, doesn't mean you wasted your time. You hopefully learned something about what works from the assemblies and pieces of those lists. So now when you build a new concept and you take an entirely new list idea you'll know where you to start from. You can say, okay, I know that these three characters and this one elite unit actually make a really good little setup that does something perfect. Yes. And also, as I said, it's, it's in the back of it. You also know when assemblies don't work, you're like, oh man, I've built this flawed assembly. Yes. You can catch yourself. And you can, oh, I'm going down this path that I know doesn't work. Mm-hmm. It's that experience that will tell you what works and what doesn't from having built lists and improved lists in the past. Yes. And this is why you shouldn't rely wholly on netlisting. Hopefully not. I mean, we are talking about a fairly high-level concept here. If you find yourself struggling with this, don't feel bad. We all do. Mm-hmm. Shaylin and I do. Josh does. Nick Nanavati does. I can't tell you how many times I've considered throwing my phone with Battlescribe across the room and then realizing throwing my iPhone across the room is probably a bad idea. Yes, it can be very frustrating. You are going to run into a lot of brick walls, but this is part of your process of growing and getting better at writing lists. And if you're at the level where you're learning to do this, then you should probably know that like this is a fairly advanced concept. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is one of the hardest things you can do in the game is being able to pick apart and build these lists like this. So if, if you are doing this, then... You're growing as a player. It's a good thing, and it's gonna hard, it's gonna be suck, and you're gonna cry, and that's that's part of it. It's tough, but understand that, like, this shows how far you've come, and how, far, how much further you can go. Well, you remember going through puberty and getting growth pains. <laughs> well, this is part of that. This is 40k growth pains, people. Yes. Like Shailen says, it's part of the growth process may not be fun at the time, but it's going to be worth it on the other end. So, hopefully you have all found this to be fairly informative. It's helped you in your own list building. If you do have lists that you're struggling with and you'd like a little bit of help, you can email us or message us on Facebook. We are in the finest hour at gmail.com as well as in the finest hour on Facebook. 
And if you would like something a little more personal and ongoing, then you can join our Patreon in the finest hour. And for $5 a month, you not only get access to our private Facebook group and our Discord chat, where we are more than happy to help you out with your lists problems, but you also will get access to our very special bonus episodes nice and early. Just dropped the first one publicly a couple weeks back here, and hopefully every week or two weeks we're probably going to have a new episode. They'll be released to the public about a month after that, but if you want to keep things a little bit more current and hear our thoughts about the meta and the lists we're working on and just kind of us chatting with each other in general, then being a part of our Patreon subscribers will get you access to all that stuff nice and early. So, we also have a number of events coming up here. Oh, yes, oh, yes, oh, yes. I know where all of these are, and I'm sad I can't go to any of them. Yeah, Shaylin, unfortunately, is not going to be doing a whole lot of events this year because of her work and other issues. But I will be attending quite a few tournaments over the course of the spring and summer here. If you're looking to meet and hang out with me, you may be able to catch me at Storm of Silence out in Spokane, Washington. That's coming up on May 18th here. Uh, or at the Bay Area Open, where you may or may not see a Joshua death. Yeah, I don't know what his plans on that one are quite yet. He still seemed a little bit fuzzy, but I will be there. Uh, uh, if he does show up, he promised me he'd haul my Grey Knights in for oh, me. Oh, excellent. Since he'd be sure. bumming my ticket, he's going to bring my army. There we go. If you are going to be there, I know Jim Vessel will be there as well, as well as uh, pretty much all the hosts of Chapter Tactics, which I'm also on. And BiffPod. Yes. You'll be able to meet quite a few of the, the folks there if you'd like. Mm -hmm. uh, and last but not least, at the, right at the very beginning of June, I'm going to be up in Bremerton, Washington for the Chords Was Right GT. If you are kind of looking for something interesting, it's a fairly new event that I'm giving a, a try to here. And there's going to be a lot of the same folks going to that one as well. Most of our, our Northwest regular crew. Without further ado, I would like to also give a shout out to our sponsors. Thank you, guys! Dank Muse, who has provided all of the music for our show. You can find him on YouTube as well as on uh, Spotify and SoundCloud. And, of course, Rylan Woodrow has provided all of our art. He's done our fantastic icon work as well as the images of the podcast hosts themselves. I'm certain we're going to have a Patreon special episode where I just chat with him. Oh yeah, I think that would be very cool. Um, talking about art in 40k. And lastly, we'd like to thank Mindtaker Miniatures, our excellent sponsor. Great couple out of Calma, Washington that just do great buy and sell trading. So, listener questions! It is in fact time for listener questions. Oh boy. Uh, we got a, a couple of these from our Patreons. This is another little side benefit of being one of our Patreons. Is you can put on questions that we will go ahead and answer for you on air. Talon, one of our many contributors and a gentleman I've been helping quite a bit with at Archangels List over the past couple of months, he asks, what is one rule or game mechanic you would like to abolish or see changed? What's what's number one on your target list, Shaylan? Honestly, I would say the Deep Strike mechanic, actually. Hmm. Any particular part of that? It's mostly that the distance, the charge distance of that 27% accuracy there. Mm -hmm. I get why they did it, but they've put in enough exceptions now that it makes things awkward in a weird way. Mm -hmm. Like those orcs sitting there with their reroll charges and eight inch charges right. with a, a basically a thousand points of orcs. I think that's a problem. I, I would definitely, I agree that that plus one to the charge there makes too much of a difference. And, yeah. 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 So, but at the same time, it's an assault army, what do you do? So it's just like, I think that mechanic could use some revisiting. I don't know exactly how it needs revisiting. I feel that it's pushing the edges of what they want it to do, and it's not yeah. quite working the way it should. I've said for a while that I think they could benefit from doing more things kind of like they did with the Gene Stewart cult, where you have the one where you can come in, you know, more than three inches from anything, but you don't get to charge. Yeah. Uh, and stuff like that. Basically, more different versions of the Deep Strike mechanics, so it's not just nine inches all the time. For my part, uh, I would say the, the number one mechanic I think they need to get back to, and I think this is one they actually could do relatively easily, terrain. Oh, They yeah. need better rules for terrain. The ones we have right now are very bland and uninspiring. Mm -hmm. uh, All right, I'm going to ask the next question. Go for it. 
from Alex, who is featured in our first special episode that you can hear. Mm-hmm. What brand, size, and color of dice do you prefer? Well, I know what Josh's answer would this would be on this one. Gravity dice. Love them gravity dice. He is a huge fan of those things, and I gotta admit they are pretty nice. But for myself, I actually use a lot of Chessex dice. The 22mm, uh, that is the, the kind of the larger sets that you tend to see. Not like the gigantic, like, casino dice size ones, but the, the, the somewhat larger... Uh, I think those are 16mm. 16s are... It's 12mm for the small ones. I was measuring dice for the dice boxes I was designing at Freight Forge. Sure. Uh, in any case, the medium-sized dice are the ones that I use, uh, as I'm not playing orcs, so I don't need to throw 64 or 120 dice at once in most cases. And I tend to get them through Chessex because they have a lot of really nice-looking things, and they can also do custom logos on various sides of them. Yes. I use both a combo of GW and Chessex dice, I go for dice that I think shinily match my army in mm-hmm. aesthetic. That is the entire reason I pick my dice, but I also pick the 12 meter small ones because I have woman hands and I cannot hold large buckets of dice. Yes. Uh, and you do tend to need a fair number of dice for your Grey Knight units because when they go full storm bolters, that's actually quite a lot of shots. It winds up being 22 at full tilt. And it turns out I can't hold 22 of the 16 millimeters in my hands very easily. So I take the 12s. <laughs> All right, uh, so our last question is from Preston, and he asks, what's your favorite event and why? You answer first while I decide. Okay, I will. <laughs> My favorite event is LVO, um, just because it is really the full encompassing of the hobby. It is the biggest single thing. It can be very overwhelming. I totally get that, but I am the kind of person who likes to go in full feet first in my hobbies. The full three days of, you know, 12 hours every day of going to events and playing in games is exactly the kind of thing that I am looking for. So I would put LVO on my third least favorite event because I keep having mental breakdowns there. That's not appealing to me. Sure. Like I said, I get why other people may not want that. <laughs> so what what is your favorite one, though? What do you like? I'm going to have to put down the boardroom brawl in Canada we went to. That was a really good tournament. So here were my reasons. One was they had some legitimately off-the-wall kooky tables, which always make me happy. It was a GT being ran out of Grand Forks, Canada. Was not a GT? Well, it was an attempt at a GT. Yes. We're going to put an asterisk on there. The uh, terrain in question was a lot of apocalypse-style terrain, so they had, like, one piece that had a hill that was literally a foot tall, which you never see, and they had a monastery on top of it. It was really cool and thematic, but it was, like, a pain in the ass to play on mechanically. Yes. Grand, Grand Forks is a very small town, like not even a thousand people, I believe. Um, but it's kind of in the center of Washington and just over the border. Yes, it, it is actually up in Canada, a short distance there. Yes. Uh, but they have a surprisingly nice little game store and a very nice play venue. The folks in there are all fantastic gamers and have some just absolutely gorgeous boards. He had laminated all the score sheets, provided dry erase pens so he didn't have to waste paper. He had printed the mission packs. He had laid out the objectives between matches so you didn't have to set them any times. They were preset for you. And those that laminated score sheet that he gave for ITC that has all the mission stuff on it, that is literally the best prize I've ever gotten from any tournament. Uh, Because I, I take that to every single tournament and I use it every single game. Yeah, it's fantastic. All right. That wraps up our listener questions for the week. So thank you everyone for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, For In the Finest Hour, I've been Sean Morgan. Shailen Allen. Thanks for listening.